pleased to have this conversation today with Carl. He is Professor of Organization and Entrepreneurship and soon takes up the Barbara Bergstrom Chair in Educational Leadership and Excellence at the Stockholm School of Economics. He's the co-author of, um, among other books and papers, Knowledge Intensive Entrepreneurship, The Birth, Growth and Demise of Entrepreneurial Firms, and a recent study on bureaucrats and markets in innovation policy study that we are going to discuss today. Now, there is a big revival of industrial policy in Europe, America, and other parts of the industrialized world. There has, for a while, been a notion out there about the entrepreneurial state that proposes that the state is critical to innovation and many of the big business successes that we have seen over the past decade. Now, governments want to do more of it, and there is talk about mission-led industrial policies with special efforts going into certain sectors and certain technologies. And if we can start there, Carl, is there something new with this type of industrial and innovation policy? I ask because I recall that we've spent the past decades talking about the need to improve the supply of human capital and angel capital or venture capital in order to get business growth in Europe. But now we seem to be moving away from that concept. Is that right? To some extent, yes. I think many people would say, though, that these basic policies of innovation support schemes, technological upgrading, human capital upgrading, better educated workforce and the like, are still in place and are still seen as important for European decision makers and politicians. But on top of that, we have a kind of revival of the old, which in many senses are, are driven by exogenous changes and to put it blunt you can say that they are driven by the pandemic by the legacy of donald trump but also about the the loomering inspiration and threat from industrial china so are these three areas the key motivations as you see for the revival of industrial policy so covid19 donald trump and alleged threats from industrial competition from china I would say very much yes. And it's probably not so much industrial competition per se, because the European Chinese trade links and, and the global value change at, at large are still kind of alive and vibrant, and we're very much dependent on them. And they are accepted by European companies, which in many cases are truly multinational global companies. But the frictions emerging from the Trump administration and its legacies, which still hasn't been dismantled, by the way, in terms of, of America first politics in practice, although with the current administration, maybe not in language, I think rather brought about a rush awakening in European leaders' sense of what it means to be vulnerable. So it's no surprise that the leading motives of current industrial policy within the European Union are strategic autonomy and resilience. And resilience is usually meant something broader, resilience to unforeseen circumstances, say migration waves or pandemics or global climate change. But in this sense, if one reads the documents, resilience here is very much meant economic resilience towards hampered trade. So in, in essence, there is a sense of Europe being vulnerable 
with a lot of key technologies and also central production facilities of material for healthcare or, or what have you being primarily sourced from the Far East. So I think this sense, which of course has become more acute during the current pandemic with you know political leaders and companies scrambling to basically board flights and procure essential industrial and healthcare material have brought about this sense of a need for strategic autonomy and resilience, which feeds into this new and revamped industrial policy, which I would say is rather targeted towards short-term research and production. So a kind of restart strategy of Europe, but with very, very targeted investments in selected technologies that are for some reason or other seen as key to achieving this independence and autonomy. So I was partly asking that question because there are two other motivations that I would like to propose and put to you and see what you say about them. The first one is, and I think you mentioned it partly in what you said, key technologies, at least on the part of Europe that there is this sentiment that we are a laggard, that we don't have the sort of the, the platforms or the technologies that have been defining the digital age. And as a consequence of that, we feel defensive and that we need to shore up our capacities in order to develop future technologies on our own. The second part, looking again more at sort of some instrumental reasons for industrial policy, is possibly the fact that there is still a preference for industry, industrial output and industrial jobs in a good part of the industrialized world talking now specifically about Europe. So it is not necessarily the case that we're talking about an industrial policy that is going to generate a services sector that is going to be highly competitive on global markets. It's mostly industrial firms that we're talking about. Why do you think there is an industrial preference in many of these policies? There are a few interrelated reasons. One is obviously political, and that is that industrial production requires plants and plants requires physical capacity and that physical capacity has to be placed somewhere and if we're talking about economies of scale and scaling up or coordinating or creating something new there's always going to be a scramble for that place call it a sweet spot within countries we've seen it when it comes to Amazon putting up new facilities throughout the US. We've seen it in France and Germany and the Nordic countries, also the UK, by the way. But now we see it, you know, on the European level, where obviously this scrambling for place and where kind of to locate these facilities becomes political game of bartering and trade. So you get the new factory for producing environmental friendly steel and I get something else in return. So it becomes a political bartering game where politicians are of course very mindful of their constituents that have voted them in place and also mindful of the preferences and constraints of others but perhaps not so mindful of the key drivers of industrial location choice in a free and open market economy which Europe is supposed to be. And that is, you know, accessibility to customers, skilled personnel, etc., etc. So in the best of worlds, companies would know how to do this and they do it all the time. 
and we see a quite a lot of, of kind of reshoring of some production capacity from the Far East back to Europe uh, during and after now the pandemic. But when we're talking about industrial policy on the scale which is the EU is now planning, it easily becomes this political game highly driven by preferences and political leaders' mindfulness of their own local constituents. So, do you understand it correctly that there is a shift in the balance now in industrial policy that if we, to generalize things a little bit here, but if we say for the past two decades, when we've talked about industrial policy, we've mostly been talking about how to improve the competitiveness of the SME sector, of small and medium-sized enterprises and their capacities to grow, to internationalize, and to sort of have their own capacities for generating new technologies and innovation. But now we are shifting it a bit more to large scale oriented type of missions again. Is that right? This is right. And what we call here a mission can be something different. Sometimes it's, you know, truly what you call an innovation mission, such as you know, solving a global crisis or a grand challenge of sorts. So that type of, of policies are enacted in various ways. But there's also this mix between the missions, which naturally are so large and broad that they have to be coordinated and partly funded at least by governments for decades, because that's the scale of such missions. With these short-sighted ideas of resilience towards trade shocks, and independence autonomy, which really is a folly because it violates the fundamental principles of what has built European wealth, and that is the common market. And the freedom and the power of the common market in generating social mobility within the community, but also in generating trade with Asia, Africa, North and South America, which is also one of the central European missions to initiate trade and, and bring about connections and political stability, peace. So both democratically and economically, this new type of innovation and industrial policies are highly problematic. You mentioned here the concept of mission-led industrial policy or mission-led innovation policies mm -hmm. with the support from government. What is that? I'm asking because this has been talked about quite a lot over the past years, especially in, in Brussels and EU circles. There is mm -hmm. also a new book which has come out by uh, Marianne Mazzucato, who previously wrote a book about the entrepreneurial state that also proposes sort of a, a mission-oriented type of governmental action in future. What, what do they have in mind? So from an academic perspective, this is very much a return to the old. Mission-led innovation and industrial policy is really what brought about the space shuttle, uh, what brought about the internet, etc. But in all those cases, it's been America aiming for some global challenge, intimately connected with the military industrial complex of America, and allowing the profits and innovations generated by those investments to be commercialized by private enterprises. That idea dissipated during the 1990s and, and early 2000s, and, and we have had various types of industrial policies ever since, you know, smart specialization in Europe and other type of policies enacted in the Far East. But now we're back to these missions, but they're being rebranded 
something not about you know winning the war or making it to the moon but rather about solving global challenges it all sounds awfully nice doesn't it but in doing so there's still the assumption that you need a sole coordinating hand to achieve that and that sole coordinating hand needs to make hard priorities in the european case between specific key production networks sometimes called ecosystems for lack of a better word because there's no sort of meaning behind the word ecosystem here in any biological or economic sense but essentially a collection of, of collaborating and competing companies more of the collaborating than competing and uh, subsidiaries and downstream players that kind of amalgamate to compose you know more or less the full value chain of that industrial production and of course that is quite attractive for any politicians to have not to be exposed to semiconductor shortage from Taiwan or Texas or you know financial capital flowing freely out of London etc but it's a great folly because it also undermines what we have been trying to do for the last 30 or 40 years to upgrade and spread and democratize how public support is given, if it is to be given, between companies with the attention to the bulk players in the European labor market, that is the small and medium-sized enterprises who have been lagging behind in many sectors and countries, who have been you know, staggering and failing often during the current pandemic. And now, this is what they get in any of these big production networks, startups are rarely considered or mentioned. And if they are, they're often a threat to the incumbents. And the SMEs are usually not at the scale where they are kind of essential players. So in essence, the new mission-led policies are really undermining what we have been trying to do in the last decades. And that is skills upgrading, technological upgrading, export orientation towards all the European SMEs and that is of course a very big problem because that's where the bulk of the workforce are located and that's also where jobs are created. Yep so mission-led innovation it's about putting the first man on the moon and Manhattan project type of ambitions and so let us continue a little bit more on the SME side and discussing the economics of SMEs and where we stand really on a host of different issues when it comes to competitiveness, global competitiveness in the European business sector. So if I, as an economist, are going to look at the European business sector, I'm mainly going to see two things here. The first one is basically large multinational companies the brands that are sort of famous around the world, they're doing pretty well. They are part of the global frontier in terms of developing new technologies, in terms of innovation. It may be that we have some issues when it comes to accessing certain type of technologies, like for instance, semiconductors, where we have problems that needs to be dealt with. But on the whole, they are competitive. They are sort of at the frontier together with firms from North America, from Asia, and, and elsewhere. Then we have another group, which are the ones that you were talking a little bit about, which are the SMEs, where we see companies that, on the whole, with exceptions, of course, but on the whole, 
they are pretty distant from the frontier. They have difficulties with accessing technologies. They have difficulties with accessing human capital, with perhaps even capital markets that can help them to fund their innovation projects and their development. I would have thought that an industrial policy trying to achieve more output, more productivity, more competitiveness would focus solely on that part of the economy and the SME sector. So why do you think we're not doing that? Or don't you don't you agree perhaps with my proposal there? So in a sense, I think it's removing from a situation where we think if we can just help the SMEs to become more innovative and competitive, things will be all right. We're going to develop in, in a steady direction somewhere along the lines of America, but with, not, with fewer fluctuation, hopefully, thanks to welfare regimes in Europe. But what we're moving on towards now is a more scary outlook for the economy and for Europe. And when decision makers are scared, they make short-term decisions. So why not try to reallocate those major funds just made available by the European Central Bank and others? For the first time in history, we're you know, printing money to invest in subsidies and sectors, undermining what has built the competitiveness of these, as you call them, global players, the high productive multinational firms of Europe. They have profited from the common market. They have benefited from the hurdle of having small home markets, but increasingly common legislature and, and trade and labor markets within Europe and the ability to rapidly internationalize. These global players will now become perhaps further and further apart. And we may risk seeing fewer of those emerging thanks to these policies that try to pick winners among existing firms and sectors, instead of providing a fertile ground for the emergence of new companies and sectors. I mean, who would have thought that Berlin would be the place to invest 20 years ago, 30 years ago, right? Who would have thought that northernmost Sweden would be the best place to get a high paying job as a blue collar worker over all the global private equity firms are flocking to make billion euro investments. Nobody would have thought that 10 years ago. So we cannot foresee the future. And there is a hard trade off between looking at the fertile ground and you know putting a lot of fertilizer on a few pet peeves plants that you think are dearly important right here, right now. But you don't know in the future. Indeed, we don't. So that, I think, also serves as a good bridge to go into another thing I wanted to talk to you about on industrial policy, because you were now into this field of picking winners and getting into the entire issue about how do we know how we're going to make choices when it comes to allocating resources and making priorities about what technologies to support, what firms to support, etc. So let us talk a little bit more about what we know and what we don't know about uh, industrial policy and innovation policies when it comes to effectiveness and what they achieve. You have with some colleagues recently done a research overview, reviewing many studies about whether these policies achieve what they want to achieve or perhaps why they often tend to fail on their mm. ambitions. 
but they're also examples of successful industrial policies. And perhaps before going into the more generic failures, let us start by talking a little bit about what made some industrial policies to be successful. The biotechnology sector in some countries are often held up as a good example. Policies to incentivize corporate spending on R&D, tax credits, for instance, is another example. So what would you say have been the type of policies that have been successful? So the types of policies that have been very successful are surprisingly often the unforeseen. These are policies like Israel and the United States opening their borders to hundreds of thousands of Russian engineers and mathematicians fleeing the remnants of the Soviet Union. Without that, no Google. Without that, no thriving tech sector in Israel, etc. There's a lot of other examples. So first point is that a lot of innovation policies, they are, that have been successful, are not branded as innovation policies. It can be, you know, deductions on home computing or broadband for regional development, which spurs the growth of new innovations and companies. Then, of course, you have specific sector like the health sector, like life sciences, where there's an intimate connection between research and commercialization and where, you know, Cambridgeshire is a very good example of, of what can be done but involving a lot of political areas like migration policy, labor market policy, taxation policy, and of course also regulations. So in some areas, there are good lessons to be learned. But as Harvard professor Josh Lerner writes in his beautiful book, The Boulevard of Broken Dreams, for every successful example, you have a dozen unsuccessful examples that are quickly forgotten. And those examples are just as common in the US as in Europe. I'm thinking of stuff we barely remember, like the Concorde airplane, for example. You know, never financially nor environmentally viable. A disastrous, expensive and polluting aircraft, just built of some vision, right? And then rapidly outcompeted by small, nimble private actors like Verdinella, Lines and the like. You have spin-off companies from the US and Europe have receiving, you know, funding from public offices and private actors for years and years and years, never developing or realizing products. And those things are supposed to be worked out by private actors taking risk, not by taxpayers that you know may have other priorities, what they need in life. One of the examples that scares me the most is what's happening right now when we see major investments from you know, national governments, but also from the EU's newly opened big coffins in, say, a certain pet peeve environmental friendly technologies like hydrogen cells, etc., which the car industry, many of the actors there loathed a couple of years ago, and now they're creating joint ventures working with other car companies simply to access those coffins. Now R&D is free for them because our taxpaying money is paying for it so they can take any risk they want. The hydrogen environmental friendly steel is also a good example. The single largest and most productive steel company in Europe recently had their main owner exiting the company because they are trying to do this. So if, if, if not even the major shareholder believes in this idea, why should we invest those major funds with all of the other needed investments in infrastructure, 
in healthcare, in improving competitiveness for the SMEs and all other things. So we are basically taking a big risk here. We're taking the risk that in this process of political bartering, identifying crucial sectors, supporting those sectors in the right way to achieve this independence, autonomy, to maybe reach a bit further with those missions that we would like to succeed, that decision makers will be making good decisions in the benefit of everyone in the very long run. So all of the traditional you know, insurances in terms of the European Union's hard non-competitiveness legislation or competition or authorities and also the common market. Those principles are suddenly, at least for the moment, being disregarded. So the rules of the games are being disregarded in order to achieve these visions and missions. And if there's something we know from history and for, from, that you will hear from every economist, is it the rules of the game? That's what matters, both in the short and long run. So I'll give you another quote, which I also think is uh, pretty telling. I can't remember exactly who said it, but it goes like this. Governments are not good at picking winners, but losers are very good at picking governments, pointing to the, the problem that sort of many industrial policies can also just be a way for uncompetitive or non-competitive companies to perhaps get extra support that isn't really leading to the type of outcomes that we initially thought we had with industrial policy. Anyway, but uh, just just so to conclude on that point, Carl, so if I understand you correctly, what you're basically saying is that if we look at the successful examples, taking, for instance, biotechnology around the University of Cambridge in the UK, or for that matter, around many other universities around the world, it's been a combination of different policies many of which have not been what we traditionally associate with industrial policy, which is basically sprinkling government money on firms. So these are the things that we're talking about, migration policy, labor market policy, tax policy, university funding, rules for how university can collaborate with the private sector, for instance. So that's how I get your point. If we want to sort of have an industrial policy, understand the successes in the past, it's that broad swathe of policies we need to understand if we want to replicate them. Yes, and that's what the academic literature will tell you as well. Okay, all right. So let us drill down a little bit more also on the research that you've been doing about the ineffectiveness of, of industrial policy. So what type of generic explanations can you give in addition to those that we've already talked about as good motivations for why these policies don't tend to fail? For instance, you're talking a lot about in this paper about information, the decentralized nature of information in in markets and firms. What, what do you mean by that? So information here can mean many different things. It's knowledge about what priorities you need to make in investments, but it's also types of information which is value-laden and I think it's beautifully summed up in Nassim Taleb's latest book, Skin in the Game. So basically, I can be a super experienced investor, and I know many of those super experienced investors, and make very stupid bets if I'm using other people's money. Right? So the difference between using your own money and other people's money is huge, even if you're the same person. 
you can just look at your own behavior in certain settings to realize that difference. So skin in the game is something extremely important, which is why we can also see as researchers when policymakers are able to somehow fictitiously coordinate and mimic skin in the game, say in funds in funds programs where governments, instead of putting up their own private equity funds, decide to piggyback on private investors and say, for every euro that you spend, we want to be in the game and we will spend one or two additional euros and we'll share the profits or the losses. So what happens then is that the private investors see opportunities for scaling up investments, but they are still the main decision makers because they have skin in the game and invest their own funds, which the public decision maker does not. So those are the type of policies that have been seen as more successful. One should be mindful though, we're talking about the policies of the 1990s and early 2000s, where lack of capital, especially for SMEs, were a crucial driving force for trying to, to achieve more innovation. Today, there's hardly any lack of capital. Anyone can walk the streets of London, Berlin, Stockholm or Copenhagen, wave a PowerPoint presentation and get 2 million euros for an idea. So it's not so much a lack of capital in the current situation with quantitative easing and the like, but it's a lack of human capital and a lack of networks that drives some regions and some countries to be less innovative than others. Let's come back to the issue about networks, human capital in a while. I just want us to talk a little bit more about what economic research is basically telling us about the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of industrial policies. So we now talk about skin in the game, the decentralized nature of uh, not just information, but perhaps also responsibility then. If, you, if you're investing your own money, you will feel more responsible for informing yourself and understanding market risks compared to if you were investing someone else's mm. money. So what else have you found in your research or reviews about the effectiveness of industrial policy? What, what really sticks out? So what struck me, which we didn't know before, is that it's so incredibly random. Uh, the devil is in the details. And that you can be hugely successful with these you know, non-industrial policies or non-innovation policies that are you know, initiated for other purposes. I think, for example, the fact that you and me and many in our generation has benefited from Erasmus scholarships moving freely, you know, across different institutes of higher education within the EU has been extremely important in supply of human capital to new and uh, old firms in generating new research at universities and the like. But I mean, this was an educational policy. It was no innovation or industrial policy, as an example. And then we're back to the networks. Why did Israel succeed in building such a flourishing venture capital market with government support, whereas other countries have failed? Well, it is because there's a lot of private investors in the United States, in particular on the East Coast, that have common ancestry. They have family linkages across generations with the Israeli population. So those types of networks 
are incredibly important in investments, but also in other types of commerce. So we forget the importance of non-tangible things like interpersonal relationships, networks and the like. And those are just as important today in, in global tech firms as they were when, you know, we were back on the street peddling stuff to each other in a market. Yeah. So if we leave then the discussion on specific industrial and innovation policies and, and follow what you're just talking about, I mean, I imagine it must be very difficult for any type of government that wants to support business growth to do anything when it comes to supporting network connections. I mean, the measures you can take against a government that usually is going to take decades for them to evolve and to begin to generate the type of outcomes that, that you're talking about. So if you look then perhaps at, at more measurable, I wouldn't call them short term, but at least not decades long type of policies. If we look at sort of policies that government can pursue now that we can say are good for business sector growth. What policies are we talking about then? What would be sort of rather than the type of industrial policies and innovation policies that we've discussed, what would you see sort of a, what you what would you prefer as a, a good type of, of business sector growth policies? First and foremost, to protect our institutions, the rules of the game. So right now, the European Union is the only well-functioning non-competitive authority within the world. So we are helping to set the rules for new companies being able to come in and compete with old companies. So reforms made in the recent years, such as, for example, open API systems on commercial banks and the like, are extremely important and will show to be super valuable for generating new competition and hence new innovations. So in essence, we need to shift focus from protecting what we have towards nurturing what may come, both for our companies and for our citizens. And for the citizens, this of course includes education and skills upgrading. If we want a resilient economy and a resilient population, well, the answer is not to protect our companies with subsidies against foreign competition or to prohibit Uber from entering Paris, but it's about making it easier to build competitive companies in Europe. It's about providing infrastructure for those companies and their customers and their employees to operate efficiently. It's about providing education, free education, with the ability to move across member states and relocate and continue onwards with education also in adult age for our citizens that will provide resilience. So resilience is not about protecting what we have, but resilience is about preparing and broadening ourselves for what may come. And here we, we have fairly well thought through institutions in Europe. It's just that we don't appreciate them. We don't appreciate the fact that our graduates are, you know, on a fraction of a fifth or a fourth as indebted as Singaporean or, or U.S. graduates who are indebted for life if they go to college. That's a great thing. 
and we should sort of celebrate that and improve our higher education institutions to make them accessible to broader swaths of the population. And we have a thriving SME sector, but now we're locking them out from these new subsidies aimed at critical industrial networks, where it may be these companies that are the vital ingredients in some future sector or, or industry that we haven't seen yet. I think that's interesting, Carl. And I mean, picking up what you said also initially, I find it interesting to see the development in the payment sector, especially online payment sector in Europe. 20 years ago, we talked about sort of PayPal developments that predominantly came in the United States. Now we're talking about a really thriving development in many countries in Europe where you see startups that now have accumulated or at least grown to such extent that they begin to sort of break into other markets. And I suppose that is one of the consequences of what you mentioned when you, you basically force banks to open up their APIs so that uh, outside payment providers can access bank account information. So uh, you were talking about human capital. So here, I mean, you were basically giving a, a pretty rosy view about the human capital situation in Europe. So if I would say this is probably one of the sort of big problems that we have in Europe when it comes to business sector growth, that two things. I mean, the first thing is that we have growing shortages of highly skilled labor, of course, not across the board, mostly within computer engineering, but we have growing shortages of human capital across Europe that is choking business sector growth in Europe. Secondly, we don't have any sort of really top-class universities in Europe anymore. I mean, since Britain left the EU, the, the top-class universities that previously were in the EU, they are no longer there. Looking at the educational performance in league tables, you find sort of that places like, uh, you know, Munich University perhaps come at rank at number 30 in the world. Is that a problem that we don't have these top-class universities in Europe? It is a problem, but it's not the foremost problem. 40% of the European Research Council money used to be heading to the British Isles up until the end of last year. So now it's more money for us, for the grabs. But obviously it means that now we need to compete with our friends across the channel. We need to recruit their key engineers, their professors, their postdocs, who may actually enjoy living in the common market, who may have heritage here or, you know, may not just like the weather better. So we need to do what the American universities up until now have been doing and right now are failing, attract the global talent. We have these generations of smart Chinese, Indian, Thai students coming for their masters and their PhDs. And then we're kicking them out or we're saying, Here's some free education, but you can't enter the labor force unless you do this and that and that test and whatever. So essentially, these are nice gestures and global solidarity, but they're failed investment from a European perspective, right? We need that talent and we need to foster the domestic and, and talent, of course, as well. And that may entail realizing that not everyone should go to university but everyone has the right to and needs to access better education, continuous education throughout the life course. So I looked at recent labor force statistics and I could see that a 
equivalent of a high school engineer in Central Europe with 10 years of labor force experience is just about as skilled as a university graduate in the US or Asia. So, I mean, we do have some well-functioning sectors there, I would say, in particular in Germany, that we need to sort of broaden and spread. Because right now we have, as you say, a choke in certain key sectors on the human capital flow. We don't attract the global talent. We don't train enough parts of the labor force, which is stuff which is now common, you know, common ingredients in any industry or or in any public sector as well. And that is, you know, high-speed computing, cloud computing, artificial intelligence, machine learning. I employ these people in my lab and, you know, how to get them to come to the university instead of going to Google. It's not easy. So that's, of course, stuff we need to invest in and may prefer to invest in instead of subsidizing companies. What about capital markets? I mean, you you said previously that sort of anyone with a smart idea can just walk the streets of Stockholm, Copenhagen, Berlin, London with a PowerPoint presentation and they're going to get 2 million euros. I think that sort of contradicts sort of a common perception, which is that there is a lack of funding for business growth in Europe, especially for the type of funding which is non-public, meaning sort of it's, it's not on public exchanges. So is, is that problem now over? Do you have that in Europe anymore? I think the problem is artificially smaller now than 10 years ago. I say artificially is because there's not because of the interventions and reforms that were made. It is because of basically quantitative easing and the, you know, the desperate attempt in the global capital markets of finding something to invest in except for blockchains, which is perhaps a little bit more tangible. And then it you know, trickles down towards the more high-risk markets, uh, early-stage investments and the like. But of course, pension funds and other actors are often prohibited to invest in those asset classes. So I think in some regions, especially urban regions, capital regions, this is, is no longer a big problem. It is a problem in some countries and in many regions within countries where banks are scaling back, where there's a tradition of debt-based funding versus equity-based funding, such as in Germany and parts of Switzerland. And here, the other regulations made after the financial crisis doesn't make it much easier, right? All the Basel two and three paperwork makes it very, very tricky for financial actors, especially banks, to take any type of risk beyond, you know, providing a mortgage for a house. So that is the problem. A problem is also relating capital to human capital and providing this information that we talked about earlier. So the information that you provide as a private citizen, Frederick, taking out of your bank account and investing in a local startup is probably different than the information that the bank officer at the local bank asked for or the information that the venture capitalists float flying in from London could potentially ask for. And that type of information, I am sure, relates much more to tacit knowledge like the potential size of the market, ability to access skilled personnel, interpersonal trust, and those type of things. And this is how investments are made. It's about this tacit information. And then there is a problem, essentially, that we have too few billionaires 
uh, we have a few billionaires and often there's you know spillovers not just in, in you know empty champagne bottles but in a lot of private sector investments made there so if you look at the number of billionaires self made I need to say here in any economy and the venture capital investments and the rate of new firm growth in the, the economy is a pretty strong causal association so here we get into taxation policy and other type of issues but we shouldn't disregard the fact that the very wealthy self-made people often have key roles to play here if we let them and when you get that functioning as it is in California it functions smoothly California used to have the worst economy of but all the US states and now it goes from from deficit to surplus in but a year because you have so many IPOs and you have European level taxes on capital gains so it goes back to the public coffins if you're able to create this critical mass of private investors all right very good so Carl you've been talking about QE why is that a significant factor here, especially now when you were talking about more startup, small business growth as well? I mean, QE is they buying corporate bonds, but that's usually corporate bonds for large companies. So what is the channel that is they're sort of going from the headquarter in Frankfurt to the small mm. startup? Well, that channel, unfortunately, is now very indirect, and I would like it to go through other sort of pathways. But what we have is, you know, uh, inflation in value of any type of assets and you know when that happens investors look for whatever risky asset they can invest in and then they tend to invest in even more riskier assets so there is a lot of capital worldwide capital to access although there are many sort of black spots within Europe uh, simply because of the lack of local banks lack of local self-made wealthy individuals and networks within, between these, because the networks are extremely essential, which creates these black holes where it's virtually impossible to access equity funds, whereas in capital regions it may be quite easy. Someone here in the chat box also said, what about printing money to subsidy? I mean, the quantitative easing is not related to subsidies per se, but this year it is. Because for the first time in European history, we're, you know, we're printing bonds to invest in, in specific sectors. And as Sok Heng rightly pointed out, this is prohibited by internal legislation in Europe and protecting the, the fair market, the common market. And also, you know, by international legislation, the World Trade Organizations and the like. So this is not unproblematic. If anything, I would say that the Biden administration is a source of information. If you have to put yourself in depth, I mean, invest in broadband and roads that will last. Don't invest in companies that may not last. That is a good rule of thumb to follow. So we had a, I think it was in the late 1960s, which when we had this book coming out, uh, La Défi Américain by Sean Shack Schreiber, who was making a few interesting arguments. One of the arguments was basically that the American management class was superior to European managers. And there was a threat here that lack of qualified management in European firms made them an easy prey for American companies that were entering European markets and com compete much more professionally as a consequence of 
being run by professional managers. Now, you're giving a different viewpoint now, basically saying that there's a global market for talent. Multinational needs to access the best person they can, regardless the nationality or the passport of that person. A counterpoint to that could be, every time I look at the website of a big German firm or a big Swedish firm or a big Danish firm or a big French firm, look at the board of directors, looking at top management, I'm not seeing very many people from different countries there. They may have sort of a token foreigner in the executive board or in the board of management, someone who brings specialized knowledge about the foreign market or specialized knowledge about something you need to have in your board of directors. So is that really correct that sort of we have resolved sort of the management problems that were talked about in the late 1960s? I think we have resolved it in some sectors. If you look at uh, institutes of higher education, from you know student to PhD student to professor up to the dean, I mean, these are now truly international places. The majority of postgraduate students in Europe are from non-European countries, right? And the majority of the rest are from another European country. So, so I mean, the national clique is still just a clique. And that also goes for the provost and for the deans of the universities in many, many respects. I think in startups, it's very much the same. In other sectors, it depends on the market, right? If the market is national. So I think that one good counterpoint to that is the German Mittelstanden firm, which are, of course, very local, often privately held. And they have somehow managed to have these international networks and be a world player in the respective little niche without being truly global in their workforce. But if you look at the workforce today, I mean, it's very much comprised about Germans with, with Turkish ancestry and the like. So I think that, you know, we are seeing this change, but it's at different paces in different sectors. And it's a well-needed change. I don't think that American manager is, you know, innately better than the European manager. But the next generation European manager may well be of Indian descent. All right. Thank you so very much, Carl. This has been a very informative and enlightening discussion. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you.